This is the Baymont Podcast with Marty Solomon. I'm his co-host, Brent Billings. Today, we bring the story to our current day, seeing what this last century has done to the world of faith that we call our own. What is Christian fundamentalism, and where did it come from? And how does evangelicalism fit into all of this? As believers, we make many assumptions about the world around us, but knowing why it exists is often helpful in accepting what it is. Love it. Man. It's like we the whole have, episode right there. I know. We may have capped off this whole journey with the best intro ever. That was great. Love that. Well played, Brent Billings. All right. Let's see here. Where are we at? Ah, 1925 or thereabouts. Fundamentalism and secular humanism continued to be locked in a fierce battle for truth for a decade. It would be worth answering the question that often goes unanswered in these conversations that we often have about this last century. What happened to the parts of Christendom that wouldn't have aligned with fundamentalism? A lot of us grew up in fundamentalism, so that's like our reference point. What about everything else? At this point in history, those who would have rejected fundamentalism often drifted towards theological liberalism. While the church in this century would eventually learn how to have a more progressive conversation and put more options, if you will, options on the table, rather than a simple bifurcated presentation of the argument of conservative and liberal, uh, this is not uh, that point in history yet. Like, we're not at that point yet. In this point in history, you really have a, a world trying to navigate um I mean, you have academia, you have the world of textual criticism, you have people learning to ask questions of the scripture, really is a world that um, a lot of the journey that we've had here at Bema is grounded in a world of critical thought and textual criticism. And yet, um, I know me personally, I'm rooted in a Christian fundamentalism. Like my my Christian fundamentalist parents uh, taught me, my my churches that I grew up in, taught me to, uh, above all else, love Jesus and the Bible. And for that, I'm deeply grateful. Like, I'm deeply indebted to them. Now, I've asked a whole lot of critical questions and deconstructed a lot of everything else about my fundamentalism, but their appreciation for Jesus, the person of Jesus, uh, and, and the place of Scripture is deeply ingrained in who I am. And so, really, Bema is kind of a... Um, a hundred years later, a bringing back of these two worlds, where these two worlds kind of took two separate paths for a while to navigate some of these nuances. And then we'll, we'll find out later in this episode, somewhere towards the end of that century, those two worlds began to come back together and kind of collide again. And Bema's the result of that collision. And so which camp do we fit into? We don't. We, we kind of have, I, at least I personally, have a little bit of both. So, but back in 1925, we don't have both. We have a splitting of these two worldviews. So for much of the, for, for much of theological liberalism, their position felt like a weak take on humanism with kind of Jesus slapped on the label. The two options that most 20th century Christians had to choose from uh, seem today like equally bad options, which is interesting to us. Either one of the camps to us today seems like, oh, well, why would you have to... Why are those my two options? Because we've navigated some of this over the last hundred years. It also looked like uh, Christianity, while putting up a good fight, was not going to have the staying power to outlast the run that humanism was putting together. Humanism was 
racking up quite the lead in this great game of life. But that all ended with the arrival of World War II. That famous world war. Any hope that humanity could usher in some type of utopian societal existence, whether it was by fascist, socialist, communist, or even democratic means, would come to a crashing end. Even uh, every humanistic worldview seemed to show its true self in the face of unbelievable genocide, communist oppression, and nuclear war. Simply put, humanity isn't as great as we thought it was. So this gave Christianity a great and sudden turnaround that ushered in what I call the modern evangelistic era, the eventual rise of the evangelical church. Fundamentalism gives way to a broader, softer version of itself and a wide representation of Protestant American Christianity. While the beliefs that justify evangelical orthodoxy change depending on who you ask, even today, right now, as we record this, modern evangelicalism attempted to plant its flag and set up its defenses. It's worth noting that we still find ourselves in this tension today. The culture wars. Ever heard of the culture wars, Brent Billings? (laughs) Culture wars. What? The culture wars. I've lived in them. Yeah. I've boycotted things. Yeah. How dare they take Merry Christmas off my coffee cup? The culture wars of current evangelical church are not the great promised land of our day, nor are they the last and final Armageddon that we often want them to be. At best, they are simply the awkward phases of a modern evangelicalism that is going through a sociological puberty, if you will. At their worst, they are the final gasping breaths of a movement coming to a very unflattering end. We would do well to consider these things. The modern evangelical movement was created by some of the greatest evangelists of our era. People like Billy Graham and Bill Bright, who was the founder of Campus Crusade for Christ, now known as Crew, in our world of campus ministry. People like Billy Graham and Bill Bright, they helped the church navigate this very difficult era, giving the church language for communicating the gospel like we had never seen. I believe history might look back on this era with a similar perspective to our view of the printing press or the Reformation. This modern evangelical push paved the way for cultural engagement like we had never seen before. Evangelism was now in the hands of normal, everyday parishioners. Not just the clergy, not just preachers. It wasn't just happening in revival tents. The creation of the four spiritual laws, no matter how you or I might feel about their theological accuracy, and that's all I'm going to say about that. Brent, you'll be proud of me. But those four spiritual laws created a world where college students, co-workers, and soccer moms could articulate the movement of Jesus in simple language. The same resurgence of cultural engagement would eventually lead to what many uh, from the 1970s call the Jesus Movement and the great testimonies of the movement of Jesus in people's hearts. That was where there was a huge crashing movement of people that were I'm welcoming Jesus into my heart. Jesus, the Christ, is living inside of me. There was like a newfound fervor in our modern era for the movement of Jesus. My mom got saved in 1975. Ah, child of the Jesus movement. Has she ever talked about the Jesus movement? Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. So she she knows all about that. Absolutely. And so many of our parents' generation uh, experienced that. So what what a beautiful time of our last century's history.
So about the same time in the 1970s, um, as this whole Jesus movement is is taking place in, in kind of the, what do we call it, the average person's world, the world of Christian fundamentalism and evangelicalism, uh, you also have the world of academia, which we don't want to forget about, that other stream of consciousness, that textual criticism. They're going through their own little um, new frontier, if you if you will. And I'm going to oversimplify this period of history um, just to try to communicate it very cleanly and crisply and not get lost in the weeds or mired in detail. So this is going to be highly oversimplified. I want to give that disclaimer. But the work of Jacob Neusner, Jacob Neusner, have we, we've quoted him before, right, Brent? I Neusner believe before? so. We've at least referenced him. All right. Uh, man, he, he's quite the figure. Maybe we could link. Uh, we even had an article the other day that we were looking at. Maybe we could even link or a Wikipedia page or his list of 950 books that he wrote in his lifetime. Yeah, wrote wrote and edited. I'm not exactly sure what the details of that mean. But whatever your role is, if you're involved in 950 books, it's pretty substantial. That is something else. Jacob Neusner. We might have some show notes that you could look at for him there in this episode. But but he changed the world of hermeneutics as we know it. I mean, Bema is not just indebted. Like we, this whole discussion would not happen without the work of Jacob Neusner. Period. Neusner, who was a Jewish literary scholar, not a Christian. Please don't hear me say he was a believer. He was not uh, just a uh, uh, an academic Jew with Orthodox roots. Uh, he was attempting to understand how modern Christian thought had influenced Jewish thought. And as he, as he brought modern Christian scholars, mostly at that era, most of them were Catholic scholars to the table, they found themselves learning lessons from Judaism. These Catholic scholars found themselves learning lessons from Judaism that had gone missing some 1,800 years ago. Realizing the impact that this had on our understanding of the Bible, academic Christians would never again engage in scholastic research or archaeology without the aid of their Jewish brothers. Was this before or after Vatican II? Oh, man, I am not good on Catholic history. So how about we uh, dig up the dates on that and go ahead and tell me. So that was between 1962 and 1965. Yeah, so most of this work is going to happen after that. Um. And just, you know, I don't know how much we talked about it, Brent, but when we go all the way back to the beginning of session five and we talked about this Gentile movement kicking the Jews out and trying to repair it, but never really repairing it. Like it's worth noting here, like we never repaired that schism for 1800 years. We went down our own stream of thought, our own stream of consciousness. We had councils and reformations and great movements and throughout history, but they were all very Gentile And now 1,800 years later, these two worlds collide again, this Jew and Gentile world on a a scholastic level, on an academic level, in the the world of scholarship. And all of a sudden, we discover things that people people look at this discussion and they say, that's crazy. Nobody was asking these questions for 1,800 years? And the simple answer to that question is no. People weren't asking these questions for 1,800 years. We didn't realize that there were questions to ask. Uh, so just a massive point in history for me, uh, from my personal perspective. Well, I don't, I don't really know that much about Vatican II or why it came about or what was, yeah, what was happening in the Catholic Church at the time. I don't know any of that history, but I do know that it changed a significant amount of things yeah, in the Catholic sure. world. And, and I'm I, just wondering yeah. if they had a new council today, in light of all of this interaction with Judaism, how much 
would happen? Yeah, that's a great question. Yeah, I've never even thought about how that part of the Catholic trajectory, and because it was Catholic scholarship so present at the table, I, I never even thought about how that was impacting. Yeah, I just never thought about how those paths cross. It's very interesting. Very good point. Many people have asked me, uh, how could we have not known this stuff for all those centuries? And the ridiculously simplistic answer is that we just hadn't asked. Until the work of Neusner and others, Christendom had been too worried about doctrinal purity and theological rightness to ask basic questions about the Bible's long-lost Jewish context. Since the turn of the century, many evangelical churches are beginning to experience the work of these scholars, finally turning the corner to our common knowledge. I mean, think about guys like N.T. Wright. Um, his whole, the way he's changed theology. Well, he just stands on the shoulders of a conversation that started, you know, just right in front of him, bringing a whole new set of questions to scholarship. That's where N.T. Wright and the entire kingdom theology movement that comes after him, and it's not just him, it's with him. Um, you get the idea. I, I had professors who told me in college that new discoveries often take 20 to 30 years to find a presence in the church. These new discoveries have to be vetted and then handed to the educational institutions, which by that I mean universities or seminaries, and then taught to the eventual pastors who would teach these things from pulpits and through, you know, podcasts later, blog posts, if you will. Now, with the rise of the, uh, the internet, the distribution of this information, and all information, good and bad, by the way, is increasing exponentially. So that, that, that curve is kind of shortening. It's speeding up. But for much of the century, it would take 30 years for us to discover something in scholarship, vet that discovery, talk about it, make sure it's, it's academically viable, then hand it to our seminaries, which then have to hand it to preachers, who then have to go out and get jobs, who then have to actually rise in those jobs to get in pulpits. It takes 30 to 40 years, 20, 20 years at least, just to see this information land in our congregations. It's crazy how long that, and now the internet's changing all that. More on that here in a moment. And everything has been this entire, from 1925 on, like we've got the Dead Sea Scrolls, We've got Jacob Neusner. Like, things are changing so fast now. Absolutely. Uh, Yes. Uh, It's just a, a part of the world that we live in right now, right? But that's not the only thing that changed at the turn of the century. The world of science had also taken an unexpected turn. While the modern era produced a scientific belief that we would be able to figure out everything if given enough time, see how this fits in that world of secular humanism? fits so nicely in there, just from a scientific perspective. But we don't live in that world anymore, post-World War II. The discovery of quantum science radically changed all of that. I will not be speaking about quantum science. I am not an expert in that. But some of the most basic principles of physics and Newtonian movement, remember Newton? We talked about how great Newton was a few episodes ago, right? Sir Isaac Newton. But, but all those things we knew about physics, for sure, all the things that, that Newton taught us no longer applied in quantum science. The scientific world reeled in the implication uh, of this development in, in scientific discovery. Combine this with the sociological realizations of the century, and we have a major shift in worldview. While humanism took a major hit, secularism was and is today far from dead. In fact, since the days of the French Revolution, this might be the most shocking shift Christendom has yet to accept. Like, we're still in denial about this. 
While we talk about it often, we talk about the post-Christian culture in some circles, we have not figured out how to respond well to it. And into this mess, Brent, enters post-modernity. Post-modernity, the post-modern conversation. In the late 1990s, the cultural cry became, what do we truly know anyway? Whether it was society or politics or science, it seemed like absolutes weren't as absolute as we once thought. While the church cried out against what we perceived as moral relativism, the world moved on anyway. Some progressive evangelicals attempted to move with this cultural change, bringing the gospel back into the cultural conversation by creating what was known as the emerging church. Remember the whole emerging church phase, Brent? Were you around for that? I heard about it a lot. I never really understood what it meant. Yeah, you were kind of the front. You were on the back end of that curve, so that was never really. Boy, that was when I was going into the Bible college. Postmodernity was all the the rage, and by rage I mean evangelicalism was raging against postmodernity, and the emerging church was the the den of iniquity and the spawn of Satan himself. Boy, largely rejected by evangelicalism. And I would argue no longer considered a viable approach. I mean, it's just morphed. It's evolved into something new, this new day of Christian thought. It no longer is about the emerging church, at least in its original form. But the emerging church helped start conversations that would set the stage for growth that the church needed to prepare for its survival in this coming world. And now, a decade or two later, we find ourselves at today, on your your timeline today, if if you look at your timeline today today. That's where we're at right now. With the rise of decentralized consumerism, think of things like Uber, Airbnb, uh, with the rise of social networking, change the landscape of our interaction pretty much everywhere. It's hard to know exactly what lies just around the bend. Where is God calling us? And what does any of this mean? Is there any hope at all for the future of Christianity? It seems like we have devolved into such a mess that it's hard to know what God would even approve of in our efforts. Well, in fact, fear not, listeners of Bema, I believe we find ourselves, as every generation has, perfectly placed for this future. And that's where we'll turn our attention in our next episode. You know, you mentioned a timeline that I don't believe we mentioned at the top of the episode. That is (laughs) correct. If you haven't looked at it yet, there is a presentation for this episode with a a timeline of this uh, last century. A lot of stuff in that one, too. A lot of goodies that uh, we'll be more familiar with because it's our day and age. All right. That does it for this episode. If you have any questions about the show, you can go to com and get in touch with us there. Uh, we would love to um, hear more about what your journey has been, where where your uh, what your background is and where you've come from, and, and maybe you have some things to bring to this conversation that, that we don't have any experience in. So... Get in touch. Let us know what that is. And thanks for joining us on the Baymont Podcast. We'll talk to you again soon.